am Rich Fogel, producer of Justice League, and you are listening to JLU Cast. Just imagine. The mightiest heroes of our time. Superman. Batman. Flash. Green Lantern. Wonder Woman. Hot Girl. John Jones, Manhunter from Mars. Have banded together as the Justice League to stamp out the forces of evil wherever and whenever they appear. The Fire and Water Podcast Network proudly presents... JLU Cast. Welcome to the 25th episode of JLU Cast, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, covering the animated adventures of the Justice League and their eventual evolution into Justice League Unlimited. I'm one of your hosts, Cindy Franklin. And I'm Chris Franklin, and this is it. We're here. We're covering the end of Season 2 and the three-part series finale of Justice League, Starcrossed. But we're not going to discuss these episodes alone. Later in the show, we will be joined by a very special returning guest. The man who conceived the story and co-wrote these episodes, Justice League writer-producer Rich Fogel returns after helping us kick off Season 2 with Twilight. But first, Cindy and I will handle the usual episode info and a briefer-than-usual synopsis before getting into our discussion with Rich. So, Starcross originally aired May 29, 2004, so quite a few months between this episode and the previous episode, which mm-hmm. was Comfort and Joy. They aired that one out of production order. Uh, Part 1 was written by Rich Fogel and directed by Butch Lukic. Part 2 had a story by Rich Fogel, a teleplay by John Ridley, and was directed by Dan Ribba. And Part 3 was written by Rich Fogel and Dwayne McDuffie and directed by Butch Lukic with music by Michael McQuistian. And yes, that that John Ridley that's in question is, in fact, uh, John Ridley, who is the Academy Award-winning writer of 12 Years a Slave. So... Yeah, and Rich will mention that in our interview with him. So, <laughs> uh, In our voice cast, we have Kevin Conroy as Batman, Maria Canals as Hot Girl, Phil Lamar as Green Lantern, Susan Eisenberg as Wonder Woman, Carl Lumley as John Jones, George Newbern as Superman, Michael Rosenbaum as The Flash, Victor Rivers as Ro Talek, and now he played Antonio Banderas' brother in The Mask of Zorro. Mm-hmm. So he was Joaquin uh, Moretta, and uh, he was also in Twin Peaks. Uh, Hector Elizondo as Lieutenant Crager. He was, of course, in Pretty Woman, The Princess Diaries. I know you like those movies. Mm-hmm. And uh, he ends up with uh, Julie Andrews in those yes. movies, doesn't he? Yeah, that's cool. Uh, he was the voice of Commissioner Gordon in the Lego Batman movie. He was Bane in Mystery of the Batwoman. He was on, uh, I did not know this because I never really watched that show, but he was on Last Man Standing with Tim Allen for like the past 10 years. Wow. I had no idea. Elizabeth Pena played Perrin Dull. She's known for Rush Hour. Uh, she voiced Mirage in The Incredibles, uh, you know, the woman that worked for Syndrome but right. ended up helping Mr. Incredible, and she was uh, Richie Valens' mom in La Bamba. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Ephraim Zemlis Jr. returns as Alfred, Jason Marsden as Snapper Carr, Javier Grajeta as a Hawk Sentry, and he is known for Breaking Bad, uh, Better Call Saul, of course, that's a spinoff of Breaking Bad, and uh, Days of Our Lives. He was on Days of Our Lives for quite a while. Okay. So, part one. In Washington, D.C., the Justice League stakes out an international peace summit that may be the target of terrorists. While the other leaguers stand vigil, Green Lantern takes the time to fly over and flirt with Hot Girl and steal a kiss. Hey there. Hey yourself. Aren't you supposed to be patrolling the North End? I thought I saw trouble over here. There's no trouble. Sure there is. And I'm looking right at it. You're bad. You should know. And you should get back to work. 
But after we're done, let's get some takeout from that Chinese place near your apartment. Great. But this time, no eel heads. Lightweight. At the Pentagon, U.S. military tracks an unidentified bogey heading for Washington and sends out jets to intercept. They fire only to then see their opponent is a huge alien ship. It returns fire on the jets, disabling them. When the League responds, Hot Girl recognizes it as a Gordanian Class 7 cruiser. The League fall victim to the ship's defenses, despite Hot Girl's warnings. As it nears the Capitol Mall, they witness an energy beam from above cleave a hole in the ship's hull. As a Gordanian ship crashes into the lawn of the Capitol building, the heroes look up to see a large mothership and a massive fleet. Hot Girl recognizes the Armada, and the League learns why when a small fighter lands before them and outsteps... A hawk man. This is Commander Fro Talek of Thanagar, and he quickly calls for a meeting with the world's leaders. Fro tells the world and the League that they had sent an advanced agent to Earth five years ago. That, of course, is Hawk Girl, who reported back that Earth's defenses are sorely lacking for the oncoming attack by Thangarian enemies, the Gordanians. The world leaders are stunned by news of this threat, but not as much as the League, who now know their friend has been spying on them. Of course, most taken aback by this is Green Lantern. Hot Girl explains she wanted to tell him the truth, but her military oath forbade her from doing so. All this time. Why didn't you tell me? John, there were so many times I wanted to. But? This was a military mission. I'd sworn an oath of secrecy, and I couldn't tell anyone. Sorry, but not even you. You're a soldier. I think you'd understand. So, what else aren't you telling me? Well, actually... Kayera! There you are. Pro. Darling, at last. Sorry, Pro Talek. John Stewart. The Green Lantern. Kayera has told me so much about you. Has she? And you two are... Pro and I are promised to each other. It's like being engaged. Congratulations. I'm sure you two must have a lot of catching up to do. I thought he'd be taller. As the world leaders in the League debate on how to respond to Talek's message, Batman and Jean try to comfort a jilted Green Lantern. Flash, of course, was totally oblivious to the obvious romance in front of him. Jean reveals he cannot read the minds of Shaira or any of the other Thanagarians. Roe and Shaira's reunion in his quarters is interrupted when word comes from Superman that Earth will accept Thanagar's help. Roe names Shaira as their liaison with the humans, but Lieutenant Krager wonders where her allegiances may now lie. In the Gobi Desert, work begins on the Thangarians project, as the League helps them build a large force-filled generator. Shaira, now in her true military garb, tries to talk to Green Lantern, but he refuses to listen. Flash questions her picking Roe over his friend, but when Talek saves a stray goat from the construction equipment, he understands a bit of what Shaira sees in him. However, on the watchtower, Batman discovers the corpses from the downed Gordanian ship died long before the attack. Later, Lieutenant Krager shows a delegation of Earth leaders around the mothership. Among them is Batman in disguise, looking very much like Alan Napier's Alfred from Batman 66 for some reason. He makes his way to Rose's secret command chambers and overhears him reporting to his superiors on Thanagar. They tell him the entire Gordanian fleet is fast approaching Thanagar, meaning they are nowhere near Earth. 
The Dark Knight is spotted and manages to get a message to Wonder Woman before he is captured. Prager informs Roe, who launches thousands of Thanagarian ships. The Thanagarians begin a simultaneous attack on the Watchtower and the Leaguers on Earth. Sarah stops Perindol from killing her friends, but Haro and his wingmen attack in mass. The U.S. military responds, but all their weapons, from missiles to tanks to rifles, are rendered useless by the Thanagarian technology. The League fare better at first, but the Thanagarians use weapons tailor-made to neutralize their powers. Green Lantern almost escapes with his teammates before a localized force field stops him. Sayara appears before him, and while Green Lantern doesn't trust her at first, she convinces him she's trying to help. He puts his ring hand down, and she smacks him upside his head with her mace. He looks up to see Shaira and Roe standing above him and passes out. Don't fight us. We're trying to help you. Do you ever stop lying? It was for your own good. You've got to trust me. Why? Whose side are you really on? Don't you know? Part 2. NATO Command confers on their completely inoperative defense systems when Hro Talek interrupts their call. He delivers an ultimatum as hundreds of thousands of Hawkmen fill the skies, occupying the entire Earth. Shaira asks about the Justice League and Talek speaks of special arrangements for them. These include red solar lights for Superman, a heavy gravity beam for Flash, and the removal of Green Lantern's power ring. Krager takes her to the warship where they are being held prisoner. In front of her former teammates, Krager confirms Shaira gave the Thanagarians the Watchtower's defense codes. He suggests Shaira kill them now and hands her a gun to do so. Look at them. Weak. Useless. Broken. It would have been difficult to storm their Watchtower without the access codes you provided. Also, your analysis of their weaknesses was most helpful. That one will be the least trouble of all. He's nothing without his toy. Don't underestimate them. You're right. Perhaps we should make sure they are not a threat. Better still, perhaps you should. The point of this occupation is to keep peace while we finish our mission. If we kill Earth's heroes, the natives will revolt. Our best plan is to build the shield, then go. Make sure they're well taken care of. Later, as the ship rockets away from the desert, Wonder Woman manages to take out her guard and begins freeing the others. During the fight, one of the Thanagarian's weapons blasts a huge hole in the hull of the ship. Wonder Woman and Superman fly the rest of the League to safety as the ship crashes off the shores of a large U.S. city. Thanagarian troops comb the streets while the League races from back alley to back alley to evade them. In a department store, they overhear the message from the floating tanks outside. The Justice League is wanted, and anyone harboring them will be punished. Batman and Jean suggest they go undercover in their civilian guises, but Flash is hesitant at first. For the time being, we're going to have to go underground. How exactly do we hide when the entire planet is looking for us? They're looking for the Justice League. Without our costumes, we are merely ordinary citizens. Hold on a second here. What about the whole secret identity thing? 
I mean, I trust you guys, but I'm not sure I'm ready to... Wally West, Clark Kent, Bruce Wayne. Show off. Red hair. It suits you. You think? Change now. They split up into pairs, planning to rendezvous at Wayne Manor, 30 miles away. Perindole reports that they have begun using humans as slave labor to complete their project. Shaira is aghast, but even more so when Hiro lets slip it's no force field they are building. It's a hyperspace bypass, which will allow them to infiltrate the previously impenetrable defenses around the Gordanian homeworld. Shaira points out that such a hyperspace tunnel would destroy the Earth, but Talek already knows that. Meanwhile, Thanagarian troops find Green Lantern's discarded manacles near the department store and determine the League is now disguised as civilians. They tighten their net, ordering that everyone must be questioned. Bruce and Diana are forced to out themselves and come to the aid of some protesters who anger the Thanagarian soldiers. The owner of an Indian restaurant beckons them inside and hides them among his patrons. Diana makes the conceit more convincing by kissing Bruce the entire time the soldiers are inside. Elsewhere, Wally and Jon Stewart prepare to board a train, but are about to be stopped by soldiers when Clark Kent and Jon Jones distract them as questioning members of the press. Aboard the mothership, Shaira begs Ro to reconsider and find another way to complete the bypass. He reminds her of the atrocities the Gordanians have committed against their people, including holding him for years in their prison camps. He takes off his helmet to reveal a disfigured face beneath. Prager interrupts and informs his commander they have lost track of the League, but questions if Shaira may know where they have gone. In anger, she chokes Krager and threatens him not to make such accusations again. As she leaves, Krager points out she never answered this question. So, Jeeves, do you come with the place, or does Master Bruce rent you just for parties? I've been in service here since the Master was in diapers. Now there's a picture. Your guests have arrived, sir. The League arrives at Wayne Manor and the Batcave, and after a few quips between Alfred and Wally, they begin trying to figure out the real reason the Thanagarians have come to Earth. As if in answer, Shaira steps from the shadows. She is not welcomed warmly, but brings technology containing the Thanagarians' true plan and Green Lantern's power ring. You've got a lot of nerve showing up here. We should thank you. It saves us having to hunt you down. I didn't come to fight. I came to help. Hawk people all over the planet, martial law, us getting chased like dogs. I don't think we could take much more of your help. The situation is worse than you think. They're building a hyperspace bypass. When it's activated, it'll destroy the planet and everything on it. Here, this has all the information on the project. Believe me, I didn't know the magnitude of Talek's plans. We'll check it out. There's the door. Aren't you going to turn your back on me, too? Last time I let my guard down, you sucker-punched me. It wasn't personal. Keep telling yourself that. I did what I thought was right then, and that's what I'm doing now. She flies off, but Krager and his men are able to triangulate her movements based on a hidden tracking device and discover the League's hiding place. Part 3 when Shire's fighter returns to the mothership, she is brought before Talek by Krager and his armed guards, accused of high treason. Talek is outraged until, until Krager shows him video footage of Shire sharing their plans with the League and giving John his ring back. Talek orders Shire taken away, and after punching Krager for his smug insolence, he orders him to attack the League, 
and take no prisoners. In the Batcave, the League watches projected footage of the planned bypass and what it will do to Earth. They also learn the force field protecting the bypass generator is located in the command ship. As they work out a plan, Crater and the Thanagarians attack, but the League is ready for them. Using their powers and a few gadgets and home team advantages in the Batcave, they take them out. While Superman, Green Lantern, and Wonder Woman attack the command ship to shut down the force field, Batman plans to take Jean and Flash with him to retake the Watchtower using the Thanagarian ship. Unfortunately, no one knows how to fly it. They grab Krager, who refuses to help them. Jean forcibly enters his mind, battling mental defenses in the forms of hawks, which attack with their talons. Jean eventually gets the information he needs, leaving Krager immobile with vacant eyes. Aboard the command ship, Talek tells Shaira he knows about her in Green Lantern. Why, Shaira? Why would you do this? I'm trying to save lives. So am I. Tens of billions of Thanagarians. So we trade the humans' lives for our own? War makes for hard choices, Lieutenant. It's them or us. The man I fell in love with would have found another way. Are you talking about me or Green Lantern? I didn't want to believe it. Shayura, I love you. I can forgive your treason. I can forgive everything. Make this all go away. Just tell me what I need to hear. It was a meaningless flirtation. You were lonely. Tell me I'm the one you love, not him. If you want me, I'm yours. All you have to do is spare the Earth. Perhaps you'll forget him once Earth is nothing but a memory. John pilots the fighter to the watchtower disguised as Krager. Once inside, however, he assumes a monstrous form, and he, Flash, and Batman begin fighting their way through to the Watchtower's command center. Meanwhile, Superman, Wonder Woman, and Green Lantern approach the command ship, and Talek sends his forces out in response. With the Watchtower back in the League's hands, Batman reveals he plans to launch it out of orbit and drop it on the bypass generator. While Flash and Jean are putting the last of the Thanagarians into the escape pods, Batman launches them and it into space. He tells a stunned Jean and Flash he will manually pilot the watchtower towards its target as they float away. Is that the last of them? Yeah, the tower's completely pest free. Good. Hey! What are you doing? I can't risk having the watchtower burn up on re-entry. I'll have to guide it in manually. Gentlemen, it's been an honor. The others enter the command ship and Wonder Woman pauses outside Shire's cell. Eventually, she begrudgingly frees her former friend and walks on. Green Lantern makes it to the force field controls, but Talek stands in his way. Obviously, Talek isn't happy about Green Lantern taking his betrothed away, and the battle is brutal and personal. The force field control is over here. That is what you came for, yes? You want it? All you have to do is get by me. It'll be a pleasure. No, this won't be like the last time you took something that belonged to me. Anything I took was freely offered. Maybe you should take better care of your stuff. Green Lantern seems to have won until Talek strikes with his nth metal axe and cuts the top off of Green Lantern's power ring. He's about to finish the job when Shaira arrives. She tries to reason with Talek, but he strikes her. They begin battling nth metal to nth metal. Batman continues to pilot the watchtower towards the target as the shields begin to give up, and it starts to burn. Superman learns of his suicide mission and flies off to intercept Batman. Shara continues to battle Talek. 
Just when she thinks she may have broken through and gotten him to listen to reason, he shocks her with his axe and flings her by her hair to the ground below. Was he worth it? This isn't about him. It's about us. Don't kill these innocent people, though. Find another way. There's no us anymore, Shaira. Green Lantern then takes up the fight once more and tricks Talek into swinging at the protective barrier around the force field controls. The impact blasts him back and shuts down the barrier, allowing John and Shaira to push down the control together, disabling the force field on Earth. As the bypass generator begins to power up, the Watchtower approaches. Superman bursts in at the last minute and flies Batman away as the generator explodes, massive waves of energy spilling out in all directions. On the command ship, Talek orders his soldiers to stand down. They have lost their battle and the Earth. Stand down. Lower your weapons. Commander? Our mission's a failure. There's no more reason to fight. Let them go. I hope you're pleased with yourself. It'll take years for us to rebuild elsewhere. Then you'd better get started. Later, at Wayne Manor, she watches news coverage of the Thanagarians leaving Earth. Alfred comforts her while the League deliberates on her membership behind closed doors. Inside, the League debates Shaira's betrayal, the choices she was forced to make, and the fact that she has nowhere else to go. They call her in to render their vote, but before they can, she tells them she won't ask them to be torn between their feelings and their duty like she was, and resigns. As she walks away, Flash stops her to give her a final hug goodbye. Outside, standing on the cliffs over the ocean, Green Lantern asks where she'll go. You never asked how we voted. It doesn't matter. So, where are you going to go? I don't know. Some place where the fate of the world isn't in my hands. Some place where there are no more secrets, no more lies. Was it all a lie? I love you, John. I never lied about that. She flies off as he admits his love for her. Okay, we'll take a quick break and we come back. We'll have our interview with Rich Fogel on this episode. Stay tuned. It's Citizen Kane Minute. Hosted by film fanatic Rob Kelly and a collection of special guests, Citizen Kane Minute will examine the greatest film of all time, five minutes at a time. Coming soon to the Fire and Water Podcast Network. And now the moment you've been waiting for, we'd like to reintroduce our very special guest. He's storyboarded, written, and produced some of your favorite animated series, including Superman the Animated Series, The New Batman Adventures, Batman Beyond, and of course, Justice League. In fact, he wrote the story for the season two opener, Twilight, which he helped us cover here on the show, and now he's back to wrap the season up with discussion on his classic series finale, Starcrossed. Please welcome Rich Fogel back to JLU Cast. Hey, Rich. Hey there. How you doing? Doing You're great. Good. Doing great. Glad to have you back. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, thank you so much for agreeing to. We haven't had a chance to speak with you in about a year and a half. Luckily, nothing big has happened in the that amount of time, so... <laughs> 
Same old, same old, huh? <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah. Just uh, just sort of cruising along, nothing happening. It's uh, yeah. What a crazy world we live in. <laughs> seriously, no kidding, no kidding. <laughs> but seriously, how did the pandemic affect the animation industry and you and you yourself in particular? Well, um, I, I've got to say that uh, animators have a, a reputation for being strange hermits who sort of hunker down into their, their little caves and draw, and that actually comes in handy during a pandemic. Um, I've been working for home for, from home for the last 20 years, and I just sort of kept doing it. Um, a lot of the entertainment industry had a lot of challenges with the pandemic, but... Uh, animation for the most part was able to um sort of keep rolling along without a lot of glitches and so um i've been working non-stop uh this whole time the biggest difference has been that uh the production company i've been working with is based in new york and normally we would get together with them for uh sort of story summits once or twice a year and either i would fly out to new york or they would fly out here to los angeles and we'd get together and sort of discuss things. And so we've had to pivot and do that virtually uh, via Zoom, uh, which, you know, it's not quite the same thing, but we're able to make it work. Mm -hmm. Oh, so, Nice, nice. Uh, yeah. It seems like there's been a lot of animation stuff uh, uh, that's been announced and a lot of animation projects. It almost seems like uh, uh, Hollywood kind of pivoted toward animation during this because they knew, <laughs> they knew it was a safe place to go, maybe. You think that... Is true, absolutely, absolutely. The the um, difficulties of getting uh, a live action show put together were were really challenging, and they needed stuff in the pipeline. So, uh, you know, unfortunately, animation takes a long time to reach the screen, and so a lot of the stuff that they greenlit, you know, still hasn't premiered yet. And I'm, you know, I'm not sure it helped them that much from that standpoint. But they didn't know how long this was going to last. And hey, we're not out of the woods yet. No, exactly. no, we're not. No, unfortunately, yeah. Uh, when last we talked, you were working on a project that you couldn't really talk about. Can you tell us what that is uh, now? Uh, officially, no, I still can't uh, okay. talk about that. But. Um, I expect that it's going to premiere on Netflix probably sometime around October, so hmm. keep an eye out for that. Oh, okay, okay. Hmm, October, the spooky season. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so now last time we covered your history with animation and history with the DCAU and Justice League in particular. So we thought this time we'd focus on our episode that we're covering today, and that's the three-part Starcross storyline. Uh, did you and the other producers and staff know that eventually you would have to tell this story? Yeah, it was it was sort of baked in from the beginning. We we knew that we were going to be doing this, and it was just a matter of of sort of building up to to the point where we could tell the story. Gotcha, gotcha. So the suggestion to have Hot Girl be the one who betrayed the Justice League came from an unlikely source. That's correct, right? Yes, yes, it was uh, from Paul Levitz, who was the president of DC Comics. <laughs> so straight from the when top. Paul, when Paul says something, it's like, "Hey, maybe we ought to listen to that." <laughs> yeah, uh, so when you told us that last time, I'm like, "Wow, that's uh, that, that, that's uh, that's pretty that's pretty cool that he would uh, that he would oh yeah you should." So he suggested that you should 
did he come up with the suggestion of actually having somebody be a traitor or did somebody already kind of float that idea? I wasn't part of that initial discussion, but I believe it was just sort of something that came up organically in in the discussion. And Paul's a really smart guy and um, grew up. Uh, he was sort of the first generation of people who sort of came up through the fan base to then become a professional working in in the industry. Um, and so he knows this stuff inside and out and, and um, you know, has a good sense for, for, you know, dramatic storytelling and stuff like that. So, you know, it, this, this seems very much like a Paul idea. Yeah, definitely. So we touched on this last time, but it bears repeating here. You and the other show creators, you purposely deceived everyone about Hot Girl's role, even though this, even through the series Bible and the press kits that were released to the media. How did you guys pull that off? <laughs> Who, us? Yeah. No, we would never do that. <laughs> um, you know, this was the early days of, of the Internet and the chat boards and things like that. And we knew that, that the stuff we were writing was going to get out online eventually because it always did. Um, and since this was such a big thing, um, it just we didn't feel comfortable about putting out into any of the material that would go anywhere else into the Warner conglomerate, um, you know, what what it was we had in mind. And so we built a cover story. We put it in the Bible. We knew what we were doing, but we had this cover story that, um, you know, that we knew could go into the promotional materials and things like that and not not cause any problems. It's it's great because it's a meta cover because it's actually the cover that Hot Girl uses within the series too. So yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, well, we we needed to make it seem like it was it was plausible within the universe that we were that we were living in, and uh, basically you, you sort of take the approach that if you're going to tell a lie, get as close to the truth as possible. Gotcha, gotcha. So did uh, so you guys? I'm, I mean, I'm assuming you, Bruce, Tim. Uh, James Tucker, others knew. Did the other writers know? Did the directors know? Did Andrea Romano, did she know all along? I think the directors knew. Uh, I, I doubt that An Andrea knew. She sort of dealt with things uh, as they came up. So my, my guess would be no. That's probably a good idea because she may have, that may have changed the way she directed Maria Canals here and there if she, if she knew, maybe. <laughs> so, and as far as Maria Canals, you know, you had said that, you know, she didn't know. When did she find out? I mean, how far ahead of recording did she find out? Because that's a big thing, you know. <laughs> uh, they normally they they get the the scripts like the night before or something like oh, that. Wow. We, okay. We we gave her the script uh, probably a few days before so that she had a chance to sort of read it and absorb it. Uh -huh. um, and she was. She was shocked. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I was. I went back and listened to the commentary track on the DVD set that uh, uh, Bruce Tim and Dwayne McDuffie and James Tucker and Butch Lukic were all on. And uh, according to them, she didn't realize that she, until like at the end of the recording session, she was more or less off the show if it continued. Uh, and so she was like double shocked again where you – were you involved? Did you catch that reaction from her when, when those recordings were done? I think that she needed some reassurance on the day uh, of the recording. And we were like, you know, she's like, does this mean I'm off the show? And we were like, well, 
Not exactly. You know, the character still exists. You know, we haven't killed her or anything like that. And, you know, we just don't know how she's going to be involved. And so that was sort of the way that we um, presented it to her. And so, you know, I, th- I think when she sort of came back and was was thinking about it some more, she was she realized, you know, like, oh, my God, you know. Right. <laughs> but, you know, there were a number of ways that we could have uh, we could have dealt with this moving forward. And, um, you know, in the same way that, like, we worked to rehabilitate Superman after the uh, the uh, thing with Darkseid where he was turned um you know, we could have we could have gone that direction with Hawkgirl as well. But, you know, moving forward, uh, Bruce and the others decided to sort of move a different direction. And so although she appeared, it, she was not as integral to the show. And speaking about the rest of the ca- the cast and stuff, how did they react that it was going to be that way, especially Phil Lamar? Because, you know, they were getting all, you know, woo, and then suddenly <laughs> she's, <laughs> she's a spy. <laughs> Well, Phil was really shocked, and he, he was he was very funny. He was like, what? What? <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, because he, he's a fan anyway, right? I mean, he was a oh, yeah. comic oh, yeah. fan. Yeah, that's what I've heard. So he, he was probably, like, really shocked that you guys went there with a, with a character, you know, big to the comic fans like Hot Girl, that you, that you would yeah. go there. Yeah. <laughs> but but everybody was very excited about doing the story. They were, they were like, "This is amazing! Mm-hmm. It's awesome! It's, <laughs> yeah. it's awesome!" Yeah. Well, they know a good they know a good story when they see it. I mm-hmm. mean, I'm sure it's shock or not. It's better to have uh, something with a lot of meat on its bones like this versus just uh, you know just a, an average action script. This is, gives them more to sink their teeth into. I'm mm-hmm. sure. Oh yeah, it was it was you know as actors it was great for them. So. Uh, as far as the production order goes, you and the other creators had just given fans the moment they were waiting for in Wild Cards with both the reveal of Hot Girl's face and her finally getting together with Green Lantern. They admitted their feelings for one another. Did you ever consider having them get together earlier in the season or did you always want to like jab that knife in suddenly? <laughs> It wasn't so much a matter of jabbing the knife in suddenly as in uh, it's primarily an action adventure show. And so although we're we're sort of seeding these emotional things in through it, we didn't want to have to sort of carry carry that load for the whole season. So it, it seemed like the right time to sort of build up to it. It was it was basically the setup for the for the finale. So that was one of the things their romance factored in after the decision was made to cast Hot Girls the Traitor. Was that to help add a double whammy to that? Well, it certainly ended up working that way. Um, When we started the series, we didn't know that we were going to build a romance uh, in for them. Um, I think that in the uh, the second episode where Stan wrote, uh, some some very good banter between them while they were uh, going across the galaxy to try and find, uh, or it was the third episode. I don't know. Maybe that was in War World. Anyway, um, some banter between them. We were like, oh, there's some chemistry there. That would be fun to play with. And mm-hmm. so we we spent a lot of time sort of just playing that that tension between them. And then you know we saw it was really working, and so we then continued to build on it. Gotcha, gotcha. Nice, very organic that way. That's that's cool. Uh, yeah. so, so the title, Star Crossed, I mean, that's a perfect title because, of course, 
Shaira and John are star-crossed lovers, and then we're going to see there is a love triangle here, and also the Justice League and Earth are about to be crossed by supposed aliens from the stars, etc. So, a perfect title for mm -hmm. for this episode. <laughs> that was uh, Dwayne McDuffie came up with that. Oh yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So I was I was you know when he said it I was like yeah that's it that's great. <laughs> that Dwayne McDuffie he was a good one huh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah. Oh man, so many great uh, great uh, stories and creations from uh, Dwayne McDuffie there. Uh, so we begin with the Gordanians apparently attacking Washington, D.C., while the League happens to be there to neutralize a rumored terrorist threat. And the Gordanians are usually associated with the Teen Titans and Starfire. So was there any winking over at the Teen Titans animated staff with this, or was it just a good alien race from the DCU to use? Mostly it was a good alien race that we hadn't used yet. Um, we, had, we had gone through quite a few of them, and so I was... Uh, I was thumbing through the uh, the DC who's who and going, well, you know, what is there in here that we could use? And I thought, well, those guys are pretty cool looking and they've got a good name. And um, that seems like it would work. So, no, it was it had nothing to do with Teen Titans. It was just we needed a We needed an alien race. So you guys actually like kept the DC, like the who's who series in the office and thumbed through it for ideas and characters to pull and things like that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It was a great resource because, um, you know, there's so much lore and and some, you know, we were able to get into some pretty obscure corners of it. And I mean, Dwayne had a sort of encyclopedic mind. He would remember everything that he ever saw. Um, I, I wasn't that smart. And so it was it was helpful to me to, um, you know, be able to thumb through it. And there were some things that I hadn't been exposed to either. You know, some things that were from the 40s. Uh, and stuff that was like, okay, yeah, that's, that's kind of a cool idea. We can, we can pull something from that. Nice, nice. Well, we've got a who's who show on the network. So I thought I'd, I'd ask that when we, uh, my friends Rob and Chad cover the who's who series. So I thought I'd, I'd ask about that. So that's cool. They'll be happy to know that. So, <laughs> uh, the Thanagarians come to the rescue, it seems, and we meet their commander, Hero Talek. But Hero Talek is an anagram. For Katar Hall, so did you originally? Uh -huh. Aha! Did you originally want to use the classic Hawkman character here? No, um, we felt like the classic Hawkman character, you know, is an established canon hero, and we didn't want to sort of muddy the waters with that. And so we we knew it was going to be a, a different Hawk character, but uh, we wanted to give a nod to uh, Katar Hall. Nice, nice. Now, another cool aspect of the Thanagarians, all the actors playing the, the Thanagarians are of Latino heritage, like Maria Canals, and it's an impressive guest cast because you got Victor Rivers, Hector Elizondo, Elizabeth Pena, and Javier Grajeda. Whose brilliant idea was that? I remember discussing it with Andrea and Bruce, and we liked the idea because we didn't want to um, put on goofy alien character uh, voices. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we didn't want it to come across as, as like Galaxy Quest. Um, <laughs> and since we had cast uh, Maria, we were like, well, wait, why don't we, you know, this is her culture. Why don't we cast everybody this way? And then it'll have a, a unified mm -hmm. sound to it, but something that's not heavy handed. Right. You know, it just, that's who they are. Yeah. 
Yeah, I thought that was it's it's really handled really well. I really thought that was a nice stroke. I mean, I noticed the first time we watched that, I'm mm-hmm. like, oh hey, that's a cool way to go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and as you point out, we were able to get some fantastic actors. I mean, I never thought I would be writing for Edgar Elizondo. Right, <laughs> right. right. <laughs> and I know that last time you mentioned you were always there for the cast recordings. Are there any stories that come out of those sessions from those episodes? From these episodes? Yeah. Absolutely. Um, that was always one of the most exciting parts for me because as a writer, it was my only chance to see the, my work being performed, mm-hmm. uh, live. And so it was, it was always fun and, and fun seeing how the actors, uh, would respond to the material. And in this case, you know, as we were saying before, they were just like, Oh my God, this is, yeah. I can't believe this is happening. And they really got into it. So it was, it was a, a great recording. Now, when you're in those recording sessions, do you say, hey, that's not exactly how I meant that when I wrote that? You know, if somebody delivers it, do you give feedback while they're doing that? Or do you leave that up to some, Is that somebody else's? Generally, what will happen is uh, we'll do a table uh, read beforehand. Mm-hmm. So we'll just sort of run through it. And mm-hmm. uh, Andrea would read the uh, the action descriptions and the actors would read their lines. They would all have their yellow highlighters and they would have highlighted their own lines. And so they would go through it once just to get a sense of where the story was going, where the moments were and things like that. And then when we would go into the recording, um, Andrea would sort of take the, the reins at that point and mm-hmm. she would stop things and say, hey, try this again. Uh, but generally try and keep things rolling because the rhythm, the interaction between the actors and stuff like that was was really important. And so um, what what Bruce and I would do would be we would be following along on our scripts and we would mark down things that were not quite right mm-hmm. um, or that we felt, you know, maybe there was a, a, a different way to go with it. Mm-hmm. And uh, then at, at the end of the recording, uh, we would all get together and um, go through and say, hey, you know, pick up line 10, pick up line 37, you know, a little more here, a little less here, something like that. Um, and then she would she would keep the actors and and do the pickups and just say, hey, try this line again. So they would mostly try and roll through it, uh, but she would stop them periodically to try and get a run going better. Uh, get get the energy correct and stuff like that, but um, but then our input would usually come uh, after she had, she had run through it because we you don't want to sort of be interrupting the the actors all the mm-hmm. time or putting too much information into their heads that would pull them out of the moment of the performance and so it was very easy to go back in and say you know hey there was a little slur on this line or there was um, you know. Um, maybe an intention that was was missed um, that we could maybe hit a little bit harder or something like that. So we would just go and do those and pick up. Gotcha. Okay. Oh, that's, that's so you guys like through all the DCAU shows, you guys pretty much did it like a radio play, right? With all the actors there. Absolutely. Absolutely. It was, uh, unless somebody was out of town. I mean, Michael Rosenbaum was, was shooting Smallville. Um, so he was out, for a lot of the the uh, episodes, 
uh, and we'd have to pick him up separately. But, you know, wherever we could, we would try and get everybody together. And it was like a radio show. It was it was really fun. (laughs) I think you guys could like release like a, a, you know, a DVD Blu-ray set of that and sell the heck out of it. Put it on HBO Max or something if there's any video of those recordings. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so rewatching this for the first time in a while, I forgot how cleverly you layered in the betrayal because the league learns Hawker was a spy, but not for any nefarious reasons at first. And was, was that a conscious decision from the get go so that the Thanagarians ultimate betrayal and purpose on earth would be even more shocking? Were you trying to layer that in as, as you, uh, as the story went along? Yeah, I mean, first of all, we were looking to have have twists come into the story where, like, I, I didn't see that coming. Um, and we'll get into this a little bit more later, but but she was a soldier who was doing her job, uh-huh. and she had to believe in her job. And so if she knew going in that the, that the plan was, we're going to destroy this planet um, – it might have changed who, how she reacted to things. And so I, I, again, sort of being military, a lot of times the mission is need to know. Uh-huh. And this was something she didn't need to know. Right. Right. And if we, she had known that would have changed how we looked at her <laughs> going forward even more, obviously. So. <laughs> right. And then, you know, not only do you find out that she's a spy, but you, then you have the double whammy to find out that she was betrothed to Haro. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I wonder, I know when I was there, I was like, oh, I was just thinking, you hussy. When, <laughs> when I read that. And I wonder what other people thought about that. Did, did you know you were going to make people squirm with that re- revelation there? <laughs> well, it's uncomfortable, but but one of the things that we were trying to, to do was to fill in some of the blanks that she had a life before she came to earth. Mm-hmm. And we, you know, the question is, what was that life? You know, she was a full grown woman. She would have had, uh, she would have had relations and things like that. Nothing, nothing out of the ordinary mm-hmm. about that, but we didn't know about it. Right. And so finding, finding out about it was shocking, but it was also, you go, well, yeah, that makes sense. Right. Right. Because you know, it, it's it, I was just like, oh, oh I, I, just, I when I really, I really thought, you know, the whole time when we first said, I'm like, oh, you bad girl. The other thing is that it it is the way it's phrased in there is that they they were promised to each other, so it it's also possible that this was an officially arranged relationship. True. Good point. And and that you know. She, being a, a good Thanagarian, had bought into it, mm-hmm. but then after being away from it for a while, maybe began to question it a little bit. Gotcha. It, this is a spot to pring type thing from Star Trek, maybe just a little bit. Maybe. <laughs> that's what, that's the yeah, point. I mean, I, I think about like uh, in in uh, Indian culture, you know, that the arranged marriages are a big thing still to this day. And it's like, that seems very odd to us, but... But it is something that's very culture specific. Mm-hmm. True. So, and did you always intend for the Hawkman analog as Shira's love interest to be part of the plan? Yeah, it made sense. It made sense to try and tie all of that together. Um, that way, it would you know it would feel more emotional and make it more complicated for her. Mm-hmm. 
And it's kind of like you you subverted expectations by even building a romance between Hot Girl and Green Lantern, something that was a, a construct of the show. And then here's Hawkman, uh, you know, or a kind of Hawkman. So now fans are like, oh, no, Hawkman's here. What's that mean? <laughs> so <laughs> Exactly. It, it gets very, very complicated. Um but that's fun. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I like that Batman and Jean knew about the romance, but poor Flash, uh, which is totally oblivious. <laughs> that had to be a, that had to be a fun exchange to write. Well, it, it was fun because he's the one who's sort of so obsessed about sex and relationships and stuff like that. And the fact that it went totally over his head was hilarious. Yeah. But again, he's your typical, you know, at this stage, in, in the show and everything else, he's seen as your typical little frat boy. I mean, he's got good intentions and he's trying really hard and he's got a good heart, but God love him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I just, uh, that, that was, that was a lot of fun. Yeah. It, that's right. Cause Wally is definitely the one with his libido on his sleeve, but he's, uh, he, he, he misses the, the obvious signals in the, in the watchtower. Yeah. So, well, the thing is that that like his at in at this stage his ability to uh have relationships uh is is not well developed and so mm-hmm. the fact that he would miss it certainly makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true too. Uh so just when we think we're going to hate Ro, uh first he defends Shira to the obviously Weasley Lieutenant Crager and then he saves a goat. Uh, so is that a thing? Is that a writing rule? Save an animal and you're at least perceived as a decent person somewhat? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, we needed to set up that he was, um, I mean, first of all, we needed to believe his story. Um, and he's not a bad guy. I mean, he is a patriot. He is mm-hmm. a soldier. Um, and, uh, and it is a little bit of a shorthand, but it it, it gets the point across. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it worked. It definitely worked. <laughs> Even Flash had to admit, he's like, I still don't like him, but, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Batman learns that the Gordanians are nowhere near Earth and everything hits the fan. And I love how you play with the viewers here because Hot Girl saves her friends from Parandol. So you assume she's going to come to their aid after they're taken down by weapons that seem tailor-made for them. Uh, and then she just gets GL's guard down and wham, hits him, hits him right with upside that, the head, right upside the head with that mace. So, wow. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a shocking moment. And, uh, and it, it, it was supposed to come out of left field and catch the viewers by surprise. Mm. And, and from every reaction I've heard, I think that it does. And yet within what we've set up, it makes sense, mm-hmm. you know, Yeah, particularly at this point <clears throat> where she believes that the Thanagarians are there to help. And if the if the Justice League is going to get in the way of that, she can't allow that. Mm-hmm. Right. Like she doesn't she doesn't have the intel that the rest of them do when that happens. She doesn't know that Batman found out that the Gordanian thing was whole you know, ruse that they were already dead in the ship and all that. So. Yeah, I like that. Right. She's acting as if, well, the ju- now the Justice League's going to screw everything up, so I got to take them down. They're, they're, you know, they don't for their own best interest. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I like exactly. that. Yeah, it's it's a heck of a cliffhanger. I mean, there's so many stakes and both galactic and personal. Very well done, sir. Very well done. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I said that back in 2003, and I'm saying it now. So. Uh, <laughs> 
So after having the sole writing credit in part one and part two, you are credited with story by and John Ridley is given teleplay by credit. And then in part three, Dwayne McDuffie is credited as written by as well as, as you. So I've always been fascinated on how this works on a television series. Can you explain a little how and why this type of collaboration comes about? Well, first of all, it is a very collaborative process. It's not just like I sat down and wrote all this out of my genius head because that's not it at all. <laughs> um, we knew we were going to do the story uh, before we started the series. And when it came time to do it, uh, we sat down in the room, Dwayne and Stan and Bruce and James and I, and we discussed this in great detail. Uh, and then I wrote the outline for all three parts uh, based on on the discussions and the ideas that we had been kicking around and stuff like that. Um, originally, I had been scheduled to write the whole thing, um, but we had gotten behind schedule when uh, one of the stories that we that I, we had been planning to do got killed for um, creative difference reasons. Uh, and so then then the writing time for this got compressed um in in concert with that um linda steiner had come who was an executive at warner's uh came to me and said hey john ridley wants to write uh an episode of of justice league and i didn't know who john ridley was um and quite frankly i had my hands full at that point and i was like yeah yeah that'd be great I'd love to give him a shot and we got to the end of the season and we st still hadn't talked to him. And she was like, you really need to talk to John Ridley. You know, he really, really re wants to do something. And I was like, okay, fine. So we, we talked to him and we said, how would you feel about, you know, writing the script for, for this, uh, for this second part? And he said like, that'd be great. Uh, and at the time he was, he was in Toronto, uh, shooting a pilot for a, for a live action show that he was doing. Um, and so we didn't see him a lot. He just sort of, uh, shipped it back to us and it was, it was terrific. I mean, he did such a wonderful job on it. I was so impressed and, uh, particularly his handling of, um, the oppression of the hawk people on the populace. Uh, there's, there's a little speech where the, the propaganda guy is sitting there going, you know, if you, sub, you, you will submit to it, it's, it's for your own good. And it's, it's this whole sort of, uh, speech there. And I read that and I thought it was, it was brilliant. It was like, this is a man who knows what oppression is. Mm -hmm. He knows what it looks like. He knows what it sounds like. And, you know, um, he, he just did a, a wonderful job on that. So, um, I was impressed. And oddly enough, <laughs> he said that the reason that he wanted to do this was that um, most of the stuff that he writes is is very R-rated. Oh. Um, a lot of, lot of swearing, a lot of, you know, hardcore stuff uh -huh. going on in it, uh, violence and so forth. And then he wanted to do something for his kids. Oh that his kids could watch. And I think his kids were like five or six years old at this point. And I, I saw this script coming back and I'm like, really, this is for your kids. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Some pretty adult themes. I mean, but it's still, I mean, it's, it's still digestible to kids. You know, they, the, 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 the nuance is, is lost on the younger set, I think, but yeah, but I, I get that. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, but anyway, we were very lucky to get him, get Academy Award winning uh, writer uh, John Ridley for for that. Um, and then for the final one, I did write the script for for the part three, um, but then my contract ended and I left, and they needed a, a sort of dialogue polish after that. So Dwayne did the dialogue polish, and that's how he got the, the credit on that one. Okay, gotcha. gotcha, gotcha. Well, that's that's fa- I always think that's fascinating. That that type of stuff is is fascinating. So thanks for filling us in. That's that's good to know. Um, the gravity beam trap prison that you have for the flash uh, that that was a new one on me and even rewatching this i'm like oh yeah i forgot they they did that so that makes a whole lot of sense because it, obviously he cannot move so how can he use his powers and uh, other than being knocked unconscious was the flash a hard one to neutralize story-wise a lot of times he was um i think the gravity beam was something that we pulled from a comic book somewhere um I think they had used that in the comic books, and we thought, well, that would be a good way to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but again, we were looking for very specific ways to neutralize each of of the heroes. Yeah, and I, we all know where that information came from. <laughs> so, <Yeah. laughs> so when Krager hands Shiera the gun to kill her former teammates, was he testing her to see if she'd actually do it, or did he know that she wouldn't, and he was just trying to make her squirm? I think he was testing her a little bit because she was challenging his authority. And, um, you know, again, from what we know of the Thanagarian culture, you don't do that. Right. See, I'd like to know what their ranks were in relationship to each other. They were both lieutenants. uh... Right. But I wonder, you know, where she was off world, did he rise above her? But they had started out, maybe he was her subordinate at one point. Mm. You know, I just kind of wondered... You know how that came. What I want backstory. You wrote the story. What, what backstory? <laughs> well, I mean, he is clearly the commander of this mission, so everybody reports to him on that, including her. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that that my feeling was that they had come up through the ranks together, mm-hmm. um, and so there was a little bit more equality between them, um, which was one of the things that gave her feel, her permission to feel like she could talk to him that way mm-hmm. was that they, she felt like they were on the same level, but because this was his mission, he was in charge here. So there, there was a little bit of power disparity going on there. Mm. Okay. I tell you what, I love that Wonder Woman kicked all the butt in this episode. Made me so happy. She kicked everybody's tail end. <laughs> and she's the one who broke free first. And I was I was counting as I was like, okay, Wonder Woman took this one down and this one down and this one down. And I was like, <laughs> tallying it up. So don't be afraid, little man. I won't bite. <laughs> I loved it. Well, she really does kick butt in this episode. She is a fierce Amazon warrior in this mm-hmm. episode, and she does not hold back. And it's kind of interesting to me looking at the at the roles in this story because uh, Wonder Woman is just – she's going to take no prisoners. She's mm-hmm. just going to go out there, and she's going to kick butt. Um, and really, if you look at it, Hawkgirl is the one who's playing Peacemaker throughout the whole episode. Mm. And so you're basically inverting what we've come to expect of those two characters in this story. Right. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. Wow. I hadn't even thought of that. But yeah, she's she's trying to. Yeah. Hawkgirl's definitely she's not the 
you know, swing mace first, ask questions later in this one. Like mm-hmm. she, like she is many times. So <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> what well, do you think? Was there any concern that younger or maybe less enlightened viewers might read? Oh, the woman betrayed them, and and if so, did that inspire any extra effort to make Wonder Woman's role in this more integral to make her the chief butt kicker in this episode? I don't think we were that enlightened then. Okay. <laughs> well, that maybe that's a good thing. We didn't have to worry about that stuff yeah, back then. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, when it comes down to it, um, we we didn't have a lot of wiggle room in terms of who was going to be the betrayer if we were going to do a storyline like this. Because, you know, it wasn't going to be Superman or Batman or Wonder Woman. Mm-hmm. Um, although, you know, in the Batman Beyond episode, it did turn out to be Superman. But right, right. That's right. <laughs> we'd, we'd already done that so uh, right. we needed to do something else um so the the fact that she was a woman didn't really play into it um mm. at all she was just one of our characters okay okay i just i guess the where i was coming from was the whole like the marketing thing because we've you know they famously on a lot of the justice league stuff they would leave hot girl and wonder woman off of the toys and put aquaman on there so that's i guess i was thinking more of the the kid set would be like oh the girl the girl is the traitor, you know, that type. <laughs> that type no, of I mean, that that has more to do with the blinkers that the toy companies had, that they have these stupid uh, attitudes that like, well, boys won't play with girl characters and stuff like that. So we're not going to make the boys care, the girl characters. And so it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Or they, if they make them, they're short packed and you can't find them. So, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> So it's really quite shocking. Yeah, hot girl, there she is. She's flapping her wings on camera, guys. <laughs> it's really quite shocking to see the mighty Justice League on the run. Was that a fun thing to write? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's what you always want to do as a writer, particularly with a group that's as powerful as the Justice League, is to find find a corner to, to put them in and see how they get out of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, you definitely put them in a corner here, that's for sure. Uh, and that leads to a scene that uh, it's got several moments that fans of the series had been waiting for. And not only do the leaguers reveal their secret identities to one another, or actually Batman reveals them to everybody, we finally have confirmation that the Flash is indeed Wally West. Was there ever? Yes, any, he is. Yes. Was there ever any debate on whether you would use, uh, you know, Wally or Barry as the Flash? No, not really. Um the the personality that we gave the flash was was clearly more of a wally west kind of mm-hmm. uh personality uh barry was always a bit of a stiff in the in the comics um and in the same way that we weren't beholden to like hal jordan um just because he was the first one to get there um we we felt like why not just go with the more interesting one mhm Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, cause he, he definitely played off the other characters in a, in a much better way than, like you said, straight lace Barry ever would have. Well, and I mean, I think that's, um, the way also, I think that's very revealing when they take off their mask and stuff and Diana reaches over and, you know, shuffles Wally's hair, you know, she sees him as a little brother. I thought that was a nice touch. Yeah. 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 But I really think that was a really nice touch and it was just, you know, I think they all see him as kind of like, you know, their kid brother. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah you know? absolutely. And that's the role that he sort of takes in the group. 
And, you know, Batman had already figured out who everybody was. But, you know, it was a nice touch that you had Batman unmask himself so that everybody could trust everybody else. So, you know, Batman, you know, he's not this uber paranoid fella. He's just a prepared fella. So, you know. <laughs> yeah, I, I prefer by Batman like this. who's He's been in the thick with these guys so many times at this point. He trusts them, you know, and I, I like that. Yeah, I thought that was a nice touch. Well, and and the thing is that he he needed to to sort of make something happen, and and he's very good at choosing his moment. You know, it's sort of like you didn't need to know this before, but damn it, we need it now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, we all got to meet up at my house, so you got to know who I am. So <laughs> exactly. Uh, we saw Jean take on the form of John Jones in Comfort and Joy uh, previously. Ever since Justice League and Carl Lumley's wonderful portrayal, Jean has mostly been played by African-American actors, often appearing in human form in live action uh, due to budget constraints. Usually they don't usually show him as a Martian Manhunter as much. Um, so in hindsight, do you now kind of wish you had made his human form African-American or black? Um, that would have been nice. Yeah, absolutely. That would have been, been a good idea. Um, again, the form that he took was a nod to the comic books sure. and to, you know, just to, to give the fans a glimpse of something that they were looking for in the comic books. But, but as I was saying about the flash and green lantern, we weren't necessarily beholden to that. Um, but since we see the, his human form so infrequently, yeah. um, it it seemed like well let's just do him like like he is in the comic books but actually it would have been been nice to reflect uh Carl a little bit more in mm -hmm. in the portrayal there and and i've got to say that uh, Carl's performance in Winter Soldier uh, Falcon and the Winter Soldier oh is my just gosh. phenomenal oh yes. yeah yeah we we did an episode on that and we were all our guys were just—I mean, every, not just us, of course—but we, we—I had—we had to single out just that he just—I mean, tear, you know, bring you to tears that performance. I mean, just so strong, so powerful. Yeah, he should get an Emmy nom nomination at least for that. I mean, come on, you know. <laughs> well, I mean, first of all, um, for me, it was fun. To, the reaction was like when they showed him coming on screen. It was like, oh my god, it's Carl. You know. Yeah. <laughs> It's like, but, uh, but he embodied that character so thoroughly, um, mm -hmm. including the accent, which is, that is not his, his natural speaking voice. Okay. Um, uh, that you believed him. I mean, you believed him a hundred percent and, uh, and he's just, he's a wonderful actor. He's a wonderful human being and, uh, he just deserves all all the accolades that he can get. Definitely. Definitely. Yep. So Shair learns that the Thangarians true intention is building a hyperspace bypass that would allow them to infiltrate the Gordanian space, but it will also destroy the earth. Do you recall when this particular plot point entered into the development of the story? <laughs> well, uh, I think we owe that to Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Oh. Um, <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, we were talking about what their plot could be and, um, my, my memories are fuzzy about who came up with what, but it seemed like 
when we talked about this, it, it made sense. And it was like, yeah, that'll, that'll be just, just the sort of twist that we need. And, and we didn't have any, any Vogons in it. So, um, we, we just went with the Gordanians. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. <laughs> so Shire asks when Hero was going to tell her about all this. And then she questions if he thought he might not be able to trust her. So it becomes very clear that trust is the crux of this story. I mean, the League's trust in Hot Girl is shaken, but the world trusts the Thanagarians, only to have that trust betrayed, and then Shiera betrays the League in general, and Green Lantern in particular, and yet the other Leaguers share an even greater trust with their true identities, as we mentioned. So when you sat down to write this story, did you know by the nature of the story you had to tell that the questions of trust and duty would have to be at the core of this story? I, I think that's something that sort of came as a refinement as we were as we were telling it. I mean, we knew sort of what the what the broad outlines were of what was going to happen in in terms of the the big things. And then as we began to sort of dig deeper into the story, it was it was about well, why could this happen? What what would cause this to happen? And then that that issue of duty. And what what her duty is to Earth and what her duty is to the Thanagarians uh, began to come to to the forefront, and then that that element of trust on on everybody's part sort of filled that whole thing out. So it's one of those things that like you you sort of focus in on it as you as you go through telling the story. Well, and then you also have the idea of the leaguers having to trust you know, the the earthlings, for lack of a better term, you know, because the Indian restaurant owner hides Bruce and Diana, which allows them to have their first kiss, which spicy. Um, <laughs> and was it important to show you that regular people were resisting as much as they possibly could against such an intergalactic threat? Absolutely. You don't have to have capes to be a hero. Mm-hmm. Um, and it didn't make sense to have this invasion force just come in and take over and not have people push back against them, even if the odds were against them. You mm-hmm. know, it's human nature to, to resist uh, that kind of oppression. And, um, and I think it was important to show that. Yeah. And, and I'm glad you did. I mean, that was a nice, that was a nice scene to show. I mean, this character, he, he saves their butts and we never see him again, but he was very important to, <laughs> right. to, 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 you know, getting the, to the solution of the, the story. So that was great. Well, and it was a, it was a moment of trust on their part because, you know, the league had to trust that the restaurant owner was going to help them. Right. You know, right. That he wasn't going to like, and he wasn't going to sell them out in, yeah. as soon as, and have a change of heart when they, mm-hmm. when the Thanagarians walk in, which I mean, when those guys walk in dressed like they do, you know. You well, understand why I would. <laughs> and then it wasn't just a question of trusting the uh, restaurant owner. They had to trust every single person in that restaurant. Right. That's true. Yeah. That's um, true. <laughs> it, only, it only would have taken one to sort of crack and go, oh, no, those two came in. But the, everybody just sort of sat there and was like, we're, we're playing along with this. Yeah. Well, and those people didn't know that was Batman and Wonder Woman either. So no. if it was Batman and Wonder Woman, maybe it would have inspired a little more trust. But they didn't know who they were. So... Yeah, they just knew they were on the run. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And what and so, Batman's line, don't be. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <don't> be. <laughs> With that Kevin Conroy charm, of course. <laughs> uh, I I really do applaud that you didn't just go the easy route, as you have said. You didn't paint the Thanagarians as completely mm-hmm. evil 
because we see by the scars on Hero's face when he takes his helmet off, those atrocities that they have seen in this war with the Gordanians, it, it makes their actions more understandable. If if not forgivable, they're understandable. You know, I mean, it, it, it's definitely right there on his face. Well, it was it was important to us that these not just be bad guys that we understood. I mean, everybody in this uh, in this story is right to a certain degree. Um, and yet it forces them into some very uncomfortable places. Mm-hmm. And that's where great stories come from, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So it had to be fun to have Ephraim Zimlis Jr. back as Alfred and and write his witty comebacks to Wally's rather stupid commentary, especially on the Batcave. So, <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was always delightful when when he came in. He was such a nice gentleman, uh, always very dapper, very like perfectly dressed, not a mm. hair out of place. Um, and he would just come in and 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 just sort of knock these things out and. Uh, it was, it was always a thrill to me because, you know, I remember watching him on TV when I was a kid and it's like, wow, that's great. <laughs> when Hot Girl came into the Batcave, were you tempted to have there be a physical confrontation? I don't have any specific memory of, I mean, I'm sure we discussed that, um, but I think we, we uh, moved away from that idea pretty quickly because they wouldn't gain anything by sort of beating each other up in the bat cave. Um, everybody was more focused on what, what needed to be done at that moment. Right. I, I think that's one reason why this story works so well is because you have all the characters, particularly Shira, they react to the changing story in a way that rings true with the way you've established the characters. She's not going to stand by and let earth be destroyed. And she's also, going to try and make amends by bringing John his Green Lantern ring back. So I, I I really thought that was a really, I mean, that was a super strong scene. Plus, actually, the way she flies away from him at the end mirrors the ending. So you kind of you kind of telegraph that a little bit, <laughs> which was a nice touch. <laughs> yeah, well, I, the thing is that, that even though they're mad at her, they have nothing particular to gain by beating up at her at this moment in the story. So they just... You know, they dismiss her almost like she's not even there. So we don't see Shira's unmasked face in this story until part three, when she is brought before Talek for treason. Was this intentional to show now she has been stripped down to nothing, considered a traitor to both the League and her own people? Yeah, and it's also, visually, it makes her look much more vulnerable at this mm-hmm. point. That that she always looks very formidable when she's wearing either one of the Hawk masks. Um, and when you strip that off of her, then she's, she's, she's just a girl. Right. <laughs> so when you write a story of this scope and you really have the time to lay the heroes low like this and you stack the odds against them, do you get the same thrill writing that third act comeback as the viewers get watching it? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It's like, oh, we got to dig out of this hole. How are we going to do that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Cause I, I mean that, that line and of course, Phil Lamar, uh, delivers it great, you know, uh, no, no more hiding. And he just, you know, shoots the end off of that bazooka. And uh, that's that's a great, like, you know, line in the sand. We're not we're not going to take it. Cue the twisted sister, right? You know, so they're not yep. going to take it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> now, I mean, when John gets a hold of Krager and forces his way inside, 
which, wow, oh my gosh, you see this fallen statue of Shaira and large statues of Talik and Krager side by side. Were you hinting that there was more beyond military camaraderie? Well, um, Krager was a fun character. He was actually inspired by uh, uh, Leonard in North by Northwest, the character that Martin Landau played. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um and so in that in North by Northwest, he Leonard is very suspicious of the Eve Kendall character that's played by Eva Marie Saint. And he's got this sort of creepy uh, way of keeping an eye on her. And you realize that he's got feelings for James Mason and all of that. And so we just stole that whole cloth from uh, North by Northwest. Um, so, yes, there 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 is more going on there. Krager is is uh, a very interesting character, but Roe is totally unaware of it. Right, right. Right. I mean, I, and then as far as, I mean, this is something that I was wondering about. You had, I'd like to find out where they got their mental shields and then where those, you know, where it actually physically manifested on John, the hawk talons, you know, in the outside world. That was really cool to show that. Well, we were trying to find a way to go beyond uh, the sort of Vulcan mind meld thing mm-hmm. and find a, a different way of um, of portraying that that kind of thing. And so it was fun, again, going into into the mind and seeing what it looks like inside the mind, and this sort of going back to the uh, the idea that what affects you in dreams can affect you in reality. Mm-hmm. We just sort of played that out to its logical extreme. Right. Yeah, kind of a little bit of the Dr. Destiny episode a little bit there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now we see that Talek is actually more concerned with Shaira's personal betrayal via her affair with Green Lantern versus her actual betrayal against her world. In your mind, did they at one time have a true loving relationship? Oh yeah. I think, I think he definitely, uh, I think he definitely has strong feelings for her. And she, like I said, in, in my mind, they sort of came up through the ranks together and they had shared experiences and were close the way that you are when you, when you are with somebody. And so there, there are, there are deep feelings there. Now, the way that his feelings uh, sort of manifest themselves, he becomes very possessive about Mm -hmm. it. Whereas she is more like, you know, I'm my own person and we're not quite on the same page here. And, you know, he's trying, I mean, he, he brings her what he thinks are her favorite foods and, um, you know, is, is making gestures and even cutting her some slack in her, in his official position because of who she is. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the, what he perceives as a betrayal by her, really cuts him to the, to the core. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, he still has his mission, but, but that hurts personally. Yeah. Yeah. I like, I like that the story, you know, for him, he, he, it really does. He's a very passionate person. You can tell I, you know, and that's a part of the portrayal as well. Uh, uh, Victor Rivers portrayal. He is, he's a very passionate, passionate guy, you know, and, and his, his passions kind of seem to consume him at this point in the story. So, yeah. Yeah. So as if the stakes weren't high enough, now you add in Batman piloting the watchtower into the bypass generator. (laughs) That, that whole moment where he sends Jean and flash off in the, the, the escape pod, Mm -hmm. it feels very wrath of Khan, like 
when Spock fixed the warp core, even though he knew it would kill him. I just, that's, that's what I mean. It's like, you got a Wrath of Khan moment in this episode. That's awesome. Yeah, it's been an honor serving with you. <laughs> yeah, well, gentlemen, it's been an honor, yeah. Yeah, that's what it is. Oh, it's yeah. Been, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it was, uh, you know, in these sort of big stories, it's hard to find um, real organic Batman moments because of the fact that he doesn't have superpowers, but mm-hmm. you know, he does have these, these moments that you can pull out like this one where you go, nobody else could do that. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> yeah. That's a very Batman, very Batman moment. It's and it totally, it totally fits his character. Uh, it, it, guys, of course, by this point, you guys knew Batman's character. You had it down to a T. So <laughs> Yeah. Was there a temptation to have Wonder Woman and Shire a fight? Or, you know, yes, she, Wonder Woman begrudgingly frees her, but, you know, and that was much better. But was there tem- the temptation, at least for Wonder Woman to deck her just once, you know? <laughs> oh, sure. Oh, sure. But, uh, but again, speaking to what I was talking about in the, in the Batcave scene, what would it gain her at this point? Mm-hmm. She, she has she has a mission. She's going to do it, and she doesn't even care about Hawkgirl at this point. Yeah, they're, they've got to save the Earth, literally save the Earth at this point. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, man, that fight between Talek and Green Lantern, I mean, whoa. Grudge match, man. Yeah, first off, there's some <laughs> interesting discussion about possessing Shiera there, but I, I kind of take... Green Lanterns, maybe you should take get a better care of your stuff. Uh, that, that line was directed more toward Talek's rather barbaric, possessive nature than any commentary, of, uh, that John would make on his own. So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it was, uh, it, it had to do with their, their differing points of view about who she was as a person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, yeah, he, he, yeah, John's calling out. It's like, man, you don't even, you don't even know her. You know, if you're, if you, if you think you can possess this woman, you don't even know this woman. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's, it's, it's, it's subtle, but it's there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I take it from the DVD commentary. You didn't write kiss my axe. Uh, so it's opinions. And if you did, that's fine, but opinions seem to vary among the group. So how do you feel about it now? That line. No, that one wasn't mine. I, I think that one was was part of Dwayne's uh, uh, polish pass on it, and I, I go back and forth on it. It's like it's a funny line, it's it's a pithy line, and stuff like that. But it it pulls me out of that moment a little bit mm-hmm. uh, when I'm watching it. And and sometimes you can be a little too clever for your own good. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a little Hollywood one-liner for the situation they're in. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> but it is fun, and it's you know for kids. I'm like, oh, he almost said you know uh, <laughs> a bad word on Justice League. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then I mean, I, this still shocks me. Ro chops the top of John's ring off. I mean. At first, when I first watched this in 2003, I thought he had cut his fingers off. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I thought you guys couldn't show it, but I thought the next scene was going to be him holding his right hand and his left hand, you know, like, you know, and not show it. But, I mean, either way, that's horrible. I mean, the pain of, like, someone breaking your fingers by cutting a ring off of your uh, your hand, with, especially with, a you know, this nth metal weapon that we've seen what Hot Girl's mace can do in this series. I mean... That was brutal. <laughs> yeah, and and I mean, you guys make fun of, of Hawkgirl's magic mace, but uh, <laughs> we don't anymore. We don't anymore. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
but it, it it just goes to show that like the the Thanagarian's technology is is equal to the Green Lantern's technology. Mm-hmm. You know that it's it's like they have they have that ability, and and this you know this allowed us to have them go mano a mano at at the end there. Yeah. Yeah, I, I thought it was funny. Bruce Tim on the commentary was like, you know, fans like, well, he, he, they can't do that. A Green Lantern ring's indestructible. And he's like, well, who says? You know, <laughs> I thought that was kind of the right. tw- tweak the nose a little bit of the, the fanboys that get a little too caught up in stuff sometimes. <laughs> so well, now, I mean, we, no, we do have we do have Nth Metal and, and we know that it has properties, too. So, you know, who's to say which one is 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 more powerful. Yeah. I don't know if we've ever seen them go up against each other. So here we go. This is, this is the precedent setter. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Well, and then you have Shira come into the room and any feelings of respect that you had for Talek are gone. Cause he sucker shocks Shira and flings her to the ground by her hair. But apparently he was at first going to smash her face into the wall. Yeah. I think, I think that was one of the things. And, and we dialed that back a little bit, but mm-hmm. it's still, it still goes to show that, you know, she always said that they were a warlike people mm-hmm. and this is, uh, this is stripping them bare, you know, that, that he is, he is savage, even though again, he's not a bad guy, but he, he is not, as, as you said, he's not in control of his emotions at this point and he just lets loose. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's it's still it's a very powerful, shocking image for him to have her by the hair and to just throw her to the ground. It's like, wow, especially because hot girl is such a tough. Mm -hmm. We've seen her be so tough. And, you know, to see her like this is just, woo. it's really you guys did a great job. (laughs) Also, also, it makes sense because, you know, again, look at hot girl in the past. She's the one who always lets loose, Mm -hmm. you know, and. Yeah, you know, is doing that. So apparently this is a Thanagarian trait. And and in this case, it gets the better of him. Yeah. I know we keep talking about, you know, Star Trek. We keep bringing that up. But it just makes me think the Thanagarians and the Klingons are like kissing cousins. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I know there's some like, we never brought that up, but they say by your command a lot. So I thought of Battlestar Galactica, you know, that that kind of jumped in there, too. So. Yeah. Uh, so, so what do you think was running through Batman's head on this on this mission to drive the Watchtower into the into the generator? Did he know someone would come in and save him at the last minute, or was he really prepared to die this time? Or is Batman always prepared to die? What's your take on that? Well, I I think he was definitely prepared to die. Again, he was focused on the mission. There was only one thing that counted, and that was taking down that generator. Uh, the the bypass generator, and so he w- he actually probably would have been very pissed off at Superman for abandoning the fight to go and rescue him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> Did you ever think about letting Talek die in the blast? Yeah, um, I'm sure. I'm sure that came up in discussion at some point, but actually, I think that there. He had a much better resolution uh, by not dying in this mm-hmm. story. Um, when he realizes that they're defeated, um, he just sort of all of that anger drains out of him. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of like, OK, I've lost. I accept that I'm a warrior. I know how to accept defeat. 
and there's no point in fighting any longer. Yeah. We're out I, of yeah, I mean, that's true. I mean, other a lesser character would have, like, you know, <laughs> tried to double cross, you know, done something before they even left the earth or something. Yeah, so, yeah, I thought that was a nice, that was a nice touch to give him a little, a little, uh, dignity. A little dignity back at the end of that after his, uh, emotional, uh, meltdown. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I understand you wanted to use Snapper Carr's news coverage to bring the show full circle, like with Secret Origins, because that's how we started with Snapper Carr news coverage. So now we're wrapping things up with the Snapper Carr news report. Yeah, and it's again, Snapper Carr was always a an integral part of the original comic books and stuff like that, and so it seemed like we could, we couldn't wrap up the series without at least having an appearance by him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a nice touch. So Alfred, you know, like you said, he he's got great delivery and he always has some sage words of wisdom. And that's a really great moment between him and Shira. So would you consider him like the wise grandfatherly type or, you know? <laughs> well, he, he's always dishing out little bits of, of wisdom. But after all of the sort of wham bam action that we've had in this in this third part, you know, a lot of things blowing up and stuff like that. Having that sort of quiet moment and a cup of tea before we wrap things up just sort of gives the audience room to breathe also. Mm-hmm. So in your mind, do you think the vote would have went yay or nay to vote her out? Because you know Wonder Woman, I mean, that look on her face is holy crap. <laughs> and you know <laughs> that Flash would have voted to keep her in. How do you think the others yep. voted? Um in my mind, it was always a three-three split. Um, that uh, Batman probably would not have trusted her again because he doesn't take betrayal very well. Mm-hmm. Superman probably would have um, said, "Yeah, okay, let's give her another chance." Uh, and John would have, John Stewart would have been very conflicted about it, but probably come down against it because he felt the betrayal so so strongly and i think john jones also probably would have possibly agreed to let her come back and so i mean we had we had endless discussions about how this was going to end up and who would vote which way on it and and all of that and then we hit on this idea of of having her gracefully bow out and and not revealing that and it and it it does leave a question in everybody's head about, well, like what would have happened? What could have happened? Right. And I mean, that final scene, you know, there are live action romance films that wish they could be that moving. It's perfect. It's just a real standout and the entire DC universe, again, very well done. I mean, <laughs> goodness. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you felt well, for him when she flew away. <laughs> well, and again, uh, I've got to give a shout out to the uh, composers because the music carries so much mm-hmm. of the emotion in, in the series and yes. they, they do such a brilliant job of, um, of honing in on those emotional moments and, and boosting them up. And that, that music that swells as she's flying away, just, you cannot help but cry when, when that right. comes up. Yeah, I mean that that was Michael McQuiston in this one, right? And it, he, yeah, he just knocked it out of the knocked it out of the park. Yeah, it's just uh, it's just so it's haunting. I mean, it really is. And it, in the in the the painted background with the sunset, and it's just it's beautiful. But it's just it's a 
it really does just uh, and and they're and and Phil Lamar and Maria Canals, they're they're acting here. They're just they're so. I mean, I've never really heard them talk that low. You know, their their voices are just so like defeated. Defeated. They're both defeated. You know, it's just uh, great delivery. Yeah, the great delivery. They're just resigned to. We're in this situation, and you know, there's nothing we can do about it, so we just got to move on. You know, it's it's fantastic. Yeah, there was a, there was a lot of electricity in the room when they were reading those uh, when they were reading those uh, and during the recording. It was just great. Wow! Wow! So at this point, did you think the series was over? Was the feeling that the show wouldn't continue on at this point in in any form? There was a real possibility that it would not. Uh, that I mean, I know I certainly was done with it by that point. I had given it everything that that I had, <laughs> um, and we had had a very difficult time coming up with uh, with stories in sort of the back end of of season two. Um, just coming up with things that is going to challenge this group and be world uh, shaking things is is not an easy thing to come up with mm-hmm. so um we felt good about this being the the end of the series if that was the end of the series and if it was going to go on we were going to need to have to find a new direction for it and uh and obviously with jlu they did come up with a new direction and and did so quite successfully so yeah, yeah. So Starcross was released as its own direct to DVD movie. I remember that. So that had to be nice to see to see it get that treatment. Yeah, I'm not sure it was really a treatment. It, you know, it's it's was nice to get a a disc of it, but uh, they they did not do much to promote it. It was just sort of they threw it out there because they could thought they could make a little extra money on it. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Overall, with uh, looking back on it now, were you happy with the way the story was executed? Oh, how could I not be? Everybody was at the top of their game uh, on this one, from the from the directors and the the voice actors and the the uh, composers. It just it all came together just as as well as I could possibly hope. So, is there any other any other things you want to add about Starcross or your work on the series? in general, uh, as we wrap things up here? Not, not that I can think of. It's, um, you know, the work I hope speaks for itself. And the fact that we're sitting here talking about it 20 years later, um, is an indication that it has some lasting power. <laughs> right. Definitely. Yeah. And in fact, I mean, it, the DCAU's back in comic form. There's the Batman Adventures Continue, uh, in the upcoming Justice League Infinity book, Bruce Tim also has a new Batman animated series in the works that was just announced with J.J. Abrams and Matt Reeves. And would you have yep. any interest in coming back to the DCAU if the opportunity presented itself? Um, sure. If if somebody wanted me to, I would certainly uh, consider it. Um, it's a it's a fun playground to uh, to be in. Um, on the other hand. I am glad to have been away from it for, for a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's there's, there's other things that I've worked on that I'm super proud of. And, um, uh, in including, uh, work on transformers animated, which is, uh, I think a really fun series. Mm-hmm. And 
uh, Octonauts, which is a terrific uh, series that, again, talking about your sort of uh, Star Trek uh, analogies, mm-hmm. that that one, uh, they, they often say that that one is uh, Star Trek underwater. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's, uh, I've had an opportunity to work on a lot of really special shows, uh, since then. And, mm-hmm. but this one has always has a, has a, a unique place in my, in my heart, um, because the, I feel so close to the characters in it. So where can folks find the work of you now? What are you uh, working on right now that's out and about? Well, uh, I don't have a good answer for that. I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, like I said, I have been working nonstop, uh, and hopefully it will be out there very, very soon. Uh, so keep an eye on Netflix. Okay. All right. Mm. We will keep, we will definitely keep our eyes peeled for Netflix. Is there anywhere people can follow you or follow Rich Fogel online or, uh, social media or Facebook or anything like that? Well, I'm an old guy. I don't really have a... (laughs) a big social media, um, uh, presence. Uh, I was hoping that, uh, that when I retired that I would be able to hit the, uh, the con circuit and get out there and meet some of the, Mm -hmm. um, the fans and stuff like that, because I always enjoy those interactions. But, uh, then COVID happened. Mm -hmm. Mm. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe we'll get back to that point someday, but in the meantime, uh, I'm keeping busy and, uh, and I'm really appreciative that you guys, uh, have enjoyed, uh, what I've, what I've done. Oh, most definitely. Yeah. Most de- definitely. Yeah. I mean, we've, we've enjoyed it. Our entire family has enjoyed it. It's a big part of our collective, uh, our collective think. I mean, you know, uh, we all, it's all, the stories are all deep in our embedded in our brains and, uh, we just we thank you and we thank you for the support of the show and the fact you've come on twice and and talked to us. It's been fantastic, mm-hmm. and uh, I can't wait to see what you got coming up on Netflix. I'm I'm really you got me excited. I'm just going to be uh, I'm going to be you know checking the uh, the announcements uh, to see what's coming up, <laughs> so <laughs> I can say ah oh, there you go. So <laughs> well, is it live action or is it animated? I'm trying to get clues. <laughs> It is. It is animated. It is animated, and uh, I'm sorry to be cryptic about it. No, but, that's fine. Uh, oh yeah, I completely understand. I'm being bad, <laughs> <laughs> but I have contracts. I know. Yeah. I know. In- NDAs. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming back uh, to talk to us about Starcross Ridge. This is uh, it's one of the. I think this is one of the best finales of any show, animated or otherwise. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a completely satisfying. Uh, you know, in, adventure, a story. It's it's so much culminated here. I, I think you capped off your DCAU tenure with one of the best. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. I mean, think about it. It's got action, adventure, romance, betrayal, you know, <laughs> the first kiss for some characters. Yeah, you know. <laughs> the last kiss the, for the, some characters. characters yeah. <laughs> At least for a while, anyway, yeah. So... Oh yeah! So thanks again, Rich. This has been fantastic. It's uh, it's great to talk to you again, and we will keep our eyes peeled for what's coming to Netflix. All right, great ch- chatting with you. Uh, stay safe, and uh, we'll see you on the other side. Okay, guys, we'll take a quick break, and we'll come back with a few more features and your listener feedback. Space. 
The Final Frontier. These are the recordings of the podcast, Give Me That Star Trek. It's ongoing mission to explore all of Star Trek, to seek out new guests and new opinions, to boldly go where many have gone before. Give Me That Star Trek. A new episode every month, only at fireandwaterpodcast.com and on iTunes. Okay, we're back, and uh, now we're going to cover our superlatives from this superlative episode. Mm -hmm. Power action feature. Uh, So for power action feature, uh, I mean, I don't know about you, but there are so many great action beats in this one. I mean... Uh, Wonder Woman taking the gun of that ship and opening up on them, for instance, and and was there any other ones that, that jumped out? I know the Wonder Woman in the jail cell, right? Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, she kicked all the butt. Yeah, but I, I, I still have to give it to Batman because he went all Slim Pickens and rode that watchtower to the <laughs> like in Doctor Strange Love. <laughs> Woo! You know that just basically, except Superman saved him at the end. What do you think? Oh, still Wonder Woman. You think it's still Wonder Woman? Oh, yeah. Okay, all right. Which Wonder Woman? Which one? Oh, all of it. All of it? Yeah. Okay. Rotating chairperson. So for rotating chairperson, I think you have to go with Hot Girl for this one, don't you? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's her deal. It's her story. I mean, yes, she spied on the League. She gave their weaknesses to her people. But she never knew they would destroy the Earth on their mission. So, no, and uh, if she hadn't done the right thing, the league would have never won. No, if, if she hadn't helped mm-hmm. them, they would have never figured out what was going on until it was too late. So, I think you I, you do have to give it to her, even though you know, obviously, I and you know, apparently, some people really never forgave the character and didn't like her after this. But it's like, uh, I don't, I don't, I don't get that. But okay, some people might not. If you guys didn't, let us know. You know. Justice League Communicator. Uh, Justice League Communicator. Uh, the exchange between Green Lantern and Hot Girl at the end, as we said when we talked to Rich, is better than most romantic dramas. Yes. Uh, it's so well written and acted. It, so it really has to be that exchange. Mm-hmm. I mean, but there's a lot of fun dialogue in this one as well, like when Flash accidentally blasts Wayne Manor. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> with the Thanagarian ship's gun, Batman says, You're not... Helping. It's like, dude, it's my house. <laughs> yeah. Of course, Alfred has some great one-liners, and that sage wisdom he gives Shire at the end mm-hmm. is great as well. So, I mean, it's just, it's chock-a-block. Oh, and yeah. And no offense to the late, great Dwayne McDuffie, but Kiss My Axe probably isn't the, <laughs> the line in this one. No, no. <laughs> Comic connections. Comic connections. There's, I couldn't find any direct ties to the comics, other than, of course, the hawkman Thanagar connection, of right. course. You know, under the leadership of the JLA villain Hyathis, Thanagar did try to invade the Earth in the Shadow War of Hawkman miniseries in the mid '80s. So, but I don't think there's really that much of a connection here. So, I mean, there's been other, there's been the Rand Thanagar War like two or three times, you know. But uh, back in the '70s, in the early 2000s, and I think they've done it again. But uh, you know, as far as like them invading Earth, that's that's about it. So, yeah. Electricity is evil. Electricity is evil. Uh, there's a lot to choose from yes. here. Yes. <laughs> Electricity is so very evil. Yeah, I mean, Superman and Jean get zapped by the Gordanian ship at the beginning. Wonder mm-hmm. Woman gets fried by the Thanagarians on the watchtower when they take it over. 
And of course, Shaira gets sucker shocked. Right. By Hero. I think that's the one you got to go with. Yeah. It, pardon the pun, it is so shocking. Right. I mean, it's so very shocking. So, yeah. So, I mean, and as we, you know, we retired the magic mace meter early this season. So, yes. <laughs> because now we see Thanagarians. I mean, clearly their weapons are very, that nth metal is very powerful. Mm -hmm. It can cut through a Green Lantern ring. So, there you go. Uh, yeah. What did you think of this three part finale? Wonderful. I mean, it, it hit all the beats. It's got all the action, you know, the romance. I mean, it's there. And, that you know, of course, there's the little comedy bits interspersed, so. Yeah, I mean, it, we've already waxed the Thanagarian cruiser on this one, but this is a nearly flawless way to wrap the season up, mm -hmm. the series up. And if Justice League and, honestly, the DCAU ended right here, who could complain? Right. I mean, this is the DCAU at high tide, you know. Yeah. Now, the thing is, is, I mean, this is a great finale, but Justice League will have, Justice League Unlimited will have a couple of great finales, actually. Right. Uh, but this one stands right there with them. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, it was just great. So, we usually take a break, but this time we'll just roll right into our feedback, because we've already taken a couple of breaks this time. So, this is your listener feedback on our last episodes, which uh, we're covering the episode Wild Cards. All right. Rob Kelly writes in. I've always loved the Royal Flush Gang, even though they are pretty goofy, and I love them here, too. Thanks for mentioning me in the same sentence as the great Tex Blaisdell. Well, you're welcome. You're the great Rob Kelly, so. See, there you go. <laughs> Ryan Daly writes in. I know that guy. The magic bludgeoning weapon used as a cardiac defibrillator move was used again in Avengers Endgame when Ant-Man causes 2012 Tony Stark to have a heart attack by pulling the plug on his arc reactor. 2012 Thor taps the reactor with Mjolnir, and a small surge of lightning jumpstarts Tony's heart again. As soon as we... As soon we, as we wrap that. We wrap that. I'm like, I forgot to put that in there. Because yep. we were going through and watching little bits of Endgame. And mm -hmm. I'm like, God dang it, we forgot to put that in there. So thanks for calling us out on that, Ryan. Natavni writes in, Also, for what a brief dip into TV tropes has taught me, apologies if this came up on the podcast, the point of a defibrillator is not to restart a stopped heart. It's to interrupt a heart that's beating erratically and ineffectively, like press, pressing the reset switch, so that hopefully when the heart starts up again, it will beat properly. I have a heart murmur, so I have to do that every once in a while. Yes. <laughs> it, gets out of, it gets out of rhythm every once in a while. Uh, Michael Kramer wrote in, Flash running a bomb out happens a few times. The earliest I can think of is in Flash number 139, the debut of the reverse Flash, where a scientist alerts Flash, Barry Allen, to the fact that an atomic clock sent into the future in a specially designed time-traveling time capsule will become an atomic bomb when it reaches its destination. Only in comics would you get that paragraph, by no. the way. Uh, Flash travels into the future via the cosmic treadmill, because of course he does, and grabs the clock. He then runs it out to the Arctic so that the atomic explosion won't harm anyone. Decades later, Wally West Flash has to run a bomb out in his year one storyline, born to run Flash number 62 through 65. Present-day Wally, as the Flash, finds a time bomb at Keystone City Airport after a hasty search and runs the on-the-verge-of-exploding bomb up the side of a plane and throws it up in the air before it explodes. There are a bunch of other instances, I'm sure, but those are the two that stick out the most in my mind. Well, thank you, Michael, and there's a little bit more on that coming, too. Nick Vector writes in, The Batman himself ran an exploding bomb out of a crowded area at a relatively super speed in the BTAS episode, Time Out of Joint. I think that's what I'm thinking of. Because I'm specifically, 
and my mind forgot that that was Batman and not Flash because he was doing a Flash thing. Mm-hmm. That I think that's what I was thinking of. I have read those other stories that Michael mentioned, mm-hmm. but I, I was thinking it was in a movie or a cartoon. It was in, it wasn't in a comic book. Sometimes you just can't get rid of a ball. Yeah, that's right. And some days you can because you've got super speed because you're dealing with the clock king. That's right. Or, well, you're just moving faster than everything else. Yeah. So. Rob McCarthy writes in, I have so many comments. Number one, why, how did this series get so dark? Two, a Joker solo series mentioned. It's underrated. Read it. Three, Chris, don't worry about killing joke. Barbara Gordon was really clayface. <laughs> well, at this point, yeah, sure. Why not? Uh, <laughs> and yeah, I, I don't think I don't think this series got. I, I think this series wasn't like didn't get like dark like dark like we think of dark as now. I mean, the thing with Ace and stuff, you know, it was. I mean, there's probably the most disturbing thing they did on the animated series before this. The earliest thing I can think of is the whole house and garden thing with Poison Ivy and her mm-hmm. family. Mm-hmm. That where she grows her family. Yeah. And, ugh, that's creepy as hell. Uh, and so this is kind of along those same lines. So I don't know. It's And it was in a later time slot on a network that was a little more open to things like that. So uh, Lizanne Oswalt writes in, impressive podcast, most impressive. Ah, this was a cool episode. Mark was at the top of his game. Glad they finally got Hawkwoman and GL together. Took them long enough. Yeah, Wonder Woman and Bats took longer, but it's Bats. He drags everything out. Well, they kiss in this one. Ah, Starcross is next. Oi. Is that a good oi or a bad oi? Uh, still was cool seeing the Royal Flush Gang and the Titans voice actors in it. Ace was good in this and great in the Bats bits for the JLU and, and Batman Beyond crossover. Well, sort of. Anyway, can't wait to hear the next podcast. Symbol Pending writes in, I will give more when I get to listen to the episode, but I gotta say, seeing poor Ace after seeing the whole show makes me sad. Whilst it makes for a great little ending to the episode and about bloody time well, I find it difficult to believe that Shiera has never taken her helmet off around the other leaguers, unless future Thanagar technology makes really comfortable helmets that don't mess up their hair. <laughs> well, as you know, we talked about in the comment section, you know, we everybody unmasks in front of each other in this episode. So, mm-hmm. you know, I guess I can kind of see that she didn't, honestly, but... And apparently she had a lot of free time because she had enough time to go wherever she... They never showed where Hot Girl lived. They that, that She's like the one person that they never showed. I, I don't know if they ever really showed where Wonder Woman was outside, but they def, definitely they showed where John lived. And mm-hmm. I, I don't know if John lived on the Watchtower or whatever, but Hot Girl, she may have lived on the Watchtower, but I kind of doubt it. She probably went back to wherever she had been and sent these messages to Thanagar because, you know, that way they wouldn't see it. You know, they couldn't detect it. Uh, Brian Linton writes in, I hadn't realized or had forgotten that the Teen Titans cast were in these episodes. I'll have to show them to my daughter, a big Teen Titans, Teen Titans Go fan, and see if she recognizes any of their voices. I bet she recognizes them right off the bat. (laughs) Isamu Yukinori writes in, Maria Canals Barrera's comments on the ending. The relationship developed quite nicely, I think, little by little. In the episode where we first kiss wild cards, that was major. Green Lantern is sitting there, shirtless, I may add, and I talk about how different we are and it would never work, and he says, all I see is a man and a woman, and then he just grabs me and takes my mask off and kisses me. When I saw that scene, it was so arousing, and this was a cartoon. It was really beautifully done, just like a movie. It's just filled with so much tension. The way I'm fighting my attraction to him and he wears me down, 
And of course, the unveiling of my face coupled with my emotions coming out. And it's just very powerful on the kiss. It's just great. It's my favorite scene on the on the show so far. Yeah. And of course, leave that to the son of our pal, Zoom Yukinori, to bring us that kind of information. Yeah. So you're carrying on your dad's good work there. So thank you. <laughs> Uh, Stephen Gibbons writes in, As much attention as the Jon Stewart hot girl romance gets in this episode, it's easy to forget that it also shows how the Joker can be a Justice League level threat just through his unpredictability and his insane yet genius schemes. I mean, he had Superman, The Flash, Green Lantern, and Hot Girl running ragged throughout Las Vegas while also going toe-to-toe with Batman. Not a small feat for a villain with no superpowers. Chris, since you brought up how over-the-top the depictions of the Joker's violence have gotten in comics... I will say I agree completely, and I often find myself groaning a little whenever he pops up in a comic anymore. This is why I always appreciate a Joker story that achieves a balance between the Joker being a credible threat while also being a lot of fun. Yeah, that is something that, in the modern comics I've read, is like totally lost. I mean, I'm sure there probably are some out there that mm-hmm. that still strike that balance, but overall it's all like, ooh, scary clown man, let's everybody's going to die. You know, it's just like, you know, it's like, well, what's the fun in that? Right. You know? <laughs> Tim Price writes in, Little thought about Ace driving the Joker crazy at the end. Maybe you mentioned this and I missed it, but Joker lied about her power not being able to affect him because he was already crazy. Or he wouldn't have held on to her power-blocking headband to protect himself, which he dropped when Batman ambushed him. So he knew her power could affect him. Then, if we take his vision as literally what he sees, Joker is falling into darkness, losing all sense of the world and possibly of himself. His ego and identity are central to his mania. And being utterly cut off from reality? Yeah, that would make him shut down. Fun episodes, especially the Teen Titans voice cast. Thanks, Franklins. I like that, Tim. I like that. I I, I will subscribe to your newsletter. I like it. Uh, (laughs) Well, that'll wrap this episode up. Special thanks to our Patreon supporters for information on how you can support the Fire & Water Podcast Network. Visit patreon.com slash fwpodcast. Extra special thanks to Jorge Luis Castillo, Matt Ryan, Neil Whitney, and our new Patreon pledge, Rocket Dan Johnson, for specifically supporting JLUcast. Woohoo! So welcome aboard, Dan. And, uh, you know, there's refreshments over uh, in the corner by the... Uh, in the green room. In the green room, yeah. Yeah, it's in the Watchtower green room. That's right. Yep. Uh, and if you folks don't mind, please go out to Apple Music and leave us a rating and review. I recently noticed we got a... One star rating, which really brought our average rating down to 4.5. The person didn't even bother to leave a review. If you like the show, we would much appreciate you at least giving us a rating and a review. If you don't like the show, well, why are you listening? You know, so. Yeah, and besides that, don't bother writing. Yeah, don't write. If you don't like the show, like, I've I've listened to (laughs) podcasts. I mean, honestly, full disclosure, I've listened to a few podcasts. I'm like, eh, it's not my thing. Not down with it. I just walk off and leave it. I don't, like, you know, feel the need to like leave them a scathing review, or I mean, unless I say something like this, just it completely angers and inflam- in, inflammatory yeah. inflames you or something. Then why would you do that? I just don't get it. But you, the rest of you guys are great. You know, one bad apple don't spoil the whole bunch. But yeah, this jerk ain't listening no more anyway. So who cares? That's right. <laughs> but if you guys could leave us a review, that would help, like kind of boost us back up a little bit. Uh, we may actually read those reviews next time, which I don't know if we've ever read our iTunes reviews. If we did, it was way back, mm-hmm. way, way back. Uh, next time we will be uh, doing our season two and Justice League series wrap party. 
Uh, like last season, we're going to talk about the highs and lows of season two, which are mostly highs, the overall winners of our superlative categories, and our thoughts on the entire series. That will be the last episode for a while before we jump into our fall Supermates House of Frankenstein coverage. But when we return, it will be JLU Unlimited. Yeah, it'll be Just League Unlimited. Now, we might do a few special episodes before we get into that coverage. Because mm-hmm. I kind of like to go back, and I'm, I'm kind of giving you a sneak preview. I kind of like to go back and fill the gap in a little bit with some of the team-up episodes that kind of built to the, the, right. the characters that we, we did. We've done a few, like we, you know, the first Green Lantern episode. Mm-hmm. The first Demon episode, the first Doctor Fate episode, but there's a few we've missed, like like Flash mm-hmm. and characters like that, and there's Batman Beyond episode with the Justice League, the, right. the Call, you know. So uh, those might be worth doing uh, before we jump into Justice League Unlimited mm-hmm. proper. So we might do that. That's something we might do, and we probably will do uh, before we. Are we back. allowed to get in any hints about what Franklin, you know, the House of Franklinstein's going to be? Uh, well, we we dropped a few. I, you know, I, we dropped it with like one on for all mankind. So, um, uh, but we can. Maybe we'll do that next time. Okay. We we'll do that okay. next time. Okay. Uh, thanks to everyone for listening, and of course, thanks once again to our very special guest, Rich Fogel, for joining us on JLU Cast, for being part of this great series we love, and for giving us all this entertainment over the yes, years. And Rich definitely. is just a nice guy. We had a really nice conversation before yes. we even started recording he's just a super super nice guy and a hell of a talent and i'm i'm just so i'm just so very happy and proud to say hey i've talked to this guy he's just uh he's just a great guy so thanks again rich and uh thank you guys for listening and we'll see you next time bye bye jlu cast is a franklin and franklin production in association with bugaloo enterprises worldwide and is a proud member of the fire and water podcast network the characters and properties mentioned in this show are copyright their respective holders likewise all audio clips are copyright their holders and no infringement is implied so please don't sue mommy and daddy emails can be sent to supermatespodcast at gmail.com comments can be left at firewaterpodcast.com Find us on Facebook by searching for JLUcast and FW Podcast Network. Follow us on Twitter by using the hashtag FWPodcast. Please consider leaving us a review on iTunes. Thank you for listening to JLUcast. Great. No hawk girl, no javelin, no watchtower. What's going to happen to the league now? Do we all just walk away? No. We rebuild, starting today. Sean's right. Earth still needs us, and we'll never let her down. It's our duty.